What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline Episode B7, Trapaya. Later in life, especially toward the end, Juba must have recalled the years as idyllic. For as long as he could remember, he lived in the shadow of responsibility, a shadow greatly cast by his foster uncle Octavian. In the princeps' name, he'd marched off to war against his own foster father, campaigned against Iberian tribes, governed a sprawling territory at the edge of the world, and, most recently, advised Gaius Caesar as he assumed his eastern imperium. But arriving in Cappadocia in late 1 AD, Juba found himself, for the first time in memory, free to do as he pleased. All was quiet on the Mauritanian front, and Ptolemy had been sent to Rome to further his education. In Syria, Gaius Caesar was beginning talks with the Parthians, a people with whom Juba had no experience to offer. The setting of Eleusis Abaste, perched on a narrow isthmus jutting into the Mediterranean and lush with olive groves, must have offered a pleasant change of scenery from Caesarea. As a bonus, King Archelaus had offered Juba the use of his own extensive library to write his next book. Perhaps most unexpectedly, the 50-year-old King Juba II found himself falling for Archelaus's daughter, the 37-year-old Princess Glyphyra. But I guess in another sense, it wasn't so surprising. Both of them had recently lost their spouses, and both were highly cultured with enviable royal pedigrees. Glyphyra's mother had been an Armenian princess, and her grandfather no less a figure than Tigranes the Great. Much like Cleopatra Selene, Glyphyra wasn't shy about trumpeting her royal lineage, a trait that hadn't really endeared her to the low-born members of Herod's Judean court. But as a descendant of Numidian kings, Juba was pretty comfortable with his own standing. The marriage of Juba and Glyphyra, only a short time after their first meeting, obviously met with her father's approval. Archelaus may have even envisioned an east-west royal alliance, nothing that would merit Rome's disapproval, but, well, who could say what the future might bring? Glyphyra's sons, by her former husband, 
Tigranes and Alexander had returned to Cappadocia upon the death of Herod the Great, and both were growing up to be fine young men. The 18-year-old Tigranes had renounced Judaism and been sent off to be educated in Rome. In a few short years, he'd be tapped by Octavian to rule the kingdom of Armenia. But that was still a ways off. For the moment, Juba had a project to finish. In writing Libica, Juba had researched both Egypt and coastal Arabia, but the text had only covered territories as far east as the Nile. In his new book, Arabia, Juba planned to cover all southern lands between the Nile and India. His overall goal was a comprehensive study of the history, natural history, and geography of the entire southern half of the known world. The extremities of his new scope, Egypt and India, were already well connected by sea, with over a hundred trading ships making the journey each year. But much of the intervening territory remained largely unknown. In some cases, the most recent accounts were from Alexander's campaigns of three centuries before. To help bring things up to date, Juba relied on information from merchants and traders in the major Near Eastern cities. He supplemented this with the knowledge of local experts, including Isidorus of Cherax, and his own personal experience in Gaza and Petra. As a result, Juba was able to construct a detailed map of Near Eastern trade networks, which even included an early reference to the city of Palmyra. Juba used Egyptian sources to flesh out the lands on both shores of the Red Sea and the circuit of the Arabian coast. For India, he mainly relied on Greek authors, whose works were present in the Cappadocian Library. For Mesopotamia and Persia, he leaned heavily on Isidorus of Cherax. There are also cryptic hints that Juba may have composed an appendix on Assyria, based largely on the work of the Babylonian priest and historian Barassus. Like Libica, Arabia was a melding of personal passion and official duty. Detailed information on trade goods, trade routes, and centers of commerce would help Octavian manage the Roman economy and fine-tune his foreign policy. Even as he enjoyed the pleasures of the Cappadocian court, Juba kept updated on affairs further east. In 2 AD, the 22-year-old Gaius Caesar was still in Antioch and deep in negotiations with the Parthians. As mentioned last episode, both Parthia and Armenia were in a state of flux, and part of Gaius's mission was to get things unfluxed. In Armenia, the end of the brother-sister ruling team of Tigranes IV and Arato had opened a power vacuum. Octavian had tried to plug the gap by appointing King Ariobarzanes II of neighboring Media Atropatine to rule over both kingdoms. The problem was the Armenians weren't too happy with Octavian's choice. Even though their royal dynasties were related, Media was basically a Parthian vassal, while Armenia prided itself on its independence, even as various rulers allied themselves with either Rome or Parthia. On news of Ariobarzanes' appointment, 
a pro-Parthian faction, led by a rabble-rouser named Adon, began openly agitating against the new king. Octavian saw Parthia's hand in the unrest, and instructed Gaius to convince the new Parthian king, Phraates V, to withdraw Adon's backing. In the late summer of 2 AD, Gaius Caesar and Phraates met face to face, on an island in the middle of the Euphrates. With massive armies assembled on either bank, Gaius offered Phraates peace with Rome if he'd quit stirring up trouble in Armenia, or, well, war if he didn't. Only a few years into his reign, one which he'd poisoned his father to get and secured by marrying his mother, Phraates had enough PR issues on the home front to risk open conflict with Rome. He accepted Gaius's terms and agreed to leave Armenia be. As it turned out, the move would only buy him a few years, and both he and his mother would be overthrown and killed in 4 AD. The general peace would be longer-lasting, and the Euphrates remained the stable border between the two powers for decades to come. With Parthia nullified, Gaius learned that a good percentage of Armenian resistance was homegrown. The recent history between Media and Armenia hadn't exactly been harmonious. You may recall the severed head of the Armenian king being sent to Media by Cleopatra, and the fiercely proud Armenians had no intention of submitting to a Median king. So, as 2 AD slid into 3 AD, Gaius Caesar made plans to install Ariobarzanes by force. Even as he did, Gaius received tragic news from Rome. Gaius's younger brother, 19-year-old Lucius Caesar, had died in Gaul from a sudden illness. Apart from his grief at his brother's loss, Gaius must have been instantly aware of the position this placed him in. The self-imposed exile of Tiberius and death of Lucius meant that Gaius was the last remaining candidate to succeed Octavian. True, his 14-year-old brother Agrippa Posthumus was still alive, but he'd never figured prominently in Octavian's plans. In the spring of 3 AD, Gaius Caesar led the Syrian legions into Armenia. Despite his loss of Parthian backing, the resistance leader, Adon, remained securely holed up in the city of Artagira. When the Romans arrived, Adon asked for Gaius to approach the city walls, hinting he had secret information about the Parthian king. When Gaius somewhat credulously did so, all he received was a nasty arrow wound. And, well, that was pretty much that for the Armenian resistance, and Gaius ordered the city to be taken and sacked. After revenging himself on the rebels, Gaius marched to the capital and installed Ariobarzanes on the Armenian throne. His troops hailed him as co-imperator, alongside Octavian, giving popular validation to his eastern imperium. Everything had gone according to plan, but there were troubling signs. Gaius's wound had begun to fester, and his growing enfeeblement, 
along with the recent death of expedition leader Marcus Lollius, led to a general collapse of discipline on the return march. Gaius blamed himself and wrote to Octavian asking to be released from his duties. Seized by a mounting fear, the princeps pleaded with Gaius to recuperate in Antioch, then return to Italy as soon as possible, and forget all other concerns. In early 4 AD, the 24-year-old Gaius felt well enough to sail for Rome. Before he embarked, he wrote to Octavian, formally resigning his eastern imperium. Taking passage on a merchant ship, Gaius Caesar only made it as far as Lemyra, on the Lycian coast, before dying of his wound. Juba, based in nearby Cappadocia, must have received word almost immediately. In his mind, the grim news could only confirm that his time in the east was nearing its end. The previous year, while Gaius had rested in Antioch, Jubat received the first troubling reports from home. The Roman proconsul of neighboring Africa, Lucius Pisianus Rufus, had been awarded a triumph by the Senate. While this might sound good, the relevant takeaway was that after two decades of relative peace, native tribes were once again growing restless. The point was hammered home a few months later, when Rufus's successor, Lucius Cornelius Lentulus, was killed while campaigning in Libya. The killing of a Roman proconsul was major and served to unite and encourage the rebellious tribes. Soon the Gaetulians had begun raiding settlements in both Africa and Mauritania. Their grievances, displacement from land, high taxation, and forced military conscription, were typical of tribes on the frontier. The zero-sum game of Roman expansion often generated intense violence, and Juba knew that there were people back home who needed his protection. For what it was worth, Juba's book was nearly complete. But of course, that wasn't his only tie to Archelaus's court. For over two years now, he'd been married to the king's beautiful and cultured daughter, Glyphyra. But as Juba prepared to return west, it soon became clear she wasn't coming with him. The reasons probably stemmed from both sides. For Glyphyra, her family and court were in the east, and the prospect of moving so far from home may have been daunting. For Juba, the idea of bringing a new wife home to Caesarea, where every building, statue, and monument was a reminder of Cleopatra Selene, must have been hard to contemplate. Juba also knew that Glyphyra had recently become close with her former brother-in-law, Herod Archelaus, the Roman ethnarch of Judea. For reasons Juba never fully understood, Herod's court still exerted a strange magnetism on Glyphyra. Whatever the real reasons were, the couple divorced near the end of 4 AD. Early the next year, Juba boarded a ship bound for Mauritania. 
In his wake, Glaphyra openly took up with Herod Archelaus, who divorced his own wife, Mariamne, around the same time. The couple's marriage shortly after was a major scandal in Judea, since Jewish law forbade a widow from marrying her former brother-in-law. The following months brought little but ill omens and tragedy. First, Glaphyra dreamed her dead husband, Alexander, condemned her for her unfaithfulness and promised to reclaim her. Two days after telling the dream to friends, Glaphyra mysteriously died. A few months later, Octavian removed Herod Archelaus from power, in response to his generally despotic rule, and sent him into forced retirement in Gaul. His former lands became the Roman province of Judea. Upon Juba's return to Mauritania in 5 AD, he was dealt another unexpected blow. His daughter, 14-year-old Drusilla, had died. His sole consolation was that he wouldn't have to bear the loss alone. After six years spent in Rome, his son Ptolemy had also returned. Only a boy of twelve when he left, Juba must have hardly recognized him as a young man of eighteen. Unfortunately, neither father nor son had much time to grieve. The Gaetulian situation had become dire, and the new Roman proconsul of Africa, Cossus Cornelius Lentulus, was making preparations for a joint African-Mauritanian campaign. Juba offered his full support, knowing that, for the first time, Ptolemy would fight at his side. Much of the next two years was spent in conflict with the Gaetulians. Though details are scarce, Roman and Mauritanian forces were eventually able to put down the rebellion, albeit with heavy losses. The proconsul Lentulus earned both the triumph and the title Gaetulicus, while Juba released a series of victory coins. Most importantly, the region would remain pacified for much of the next decade. At the same time, Juba slowly reacclimated to his royal duties, and was happy to find Ptolemy show both aptitude and interest in governing. Fifty-five years old in 7 AD, Juba was beginning to look toward Mauritania's future beyond him, and was grateful to have a strong and capable son to take his place. As he caught up on events in Rome and watched the next few years unfold, the contrast with Octavian couldn't have been more stark. From the household of Juba's youth, his foster sisters had fared best. In fact, Octavia's daughters had become virtual paragons of dignity and resilience. Marcella Major, now 48 years old, had been divorced by Agrippa and lost her second husband, Eulus Antonius, to scandal and suicide. But her third marriage, to a Roman statesman named Sextus Apulius, was a happy one. As consul for 14 AD, Apuleius would soon bear the checkered distinction of being the first man to swear allegiance to an elevated Tiberius. 
Marcella's younger sister, the 47-year-old Marcella Minor, had married and survived the deaths of two Roman consuls before marrying her current husband, a respected Roman senator. Antonia Major, now 46, had long been married to the former consul Lucius Domitius Ahenobarbus. Their son, Gnaeus, had accompanied Gaius Caesar on his eastern expedition, and, as already mentioned, would one day father the emperor Nero. Antonia Minor, now 43, had been married to Tiberius's brother Drusus, before being widowed in 9 BC. Of their three children, Germanicus would soon become famous, Livilla infamous, and the future emperor Claudius a complex mixture of both. And then, of course, there were Julia and Tiberius. Until recently, both had been living in exile and consumed by regret. In 2 AD, Octavian finally caved in to his wife Livia and allowed Tiberius to return to Rome. The princeps' caveat was that Tiberius would live as an ordinary citizen, with no special privileges and no role in government. The next year, Octavian also relented, slightly, and allowed his 42-year-old daughter Julia to leave her island and relocate to Calabria. But this was as far as the princeps would go. He'd never forgive her, allow her any company, or permit her burial in the Augustan mausoleum. As horrible as the loss of her sons Gaius and Lucius must have been, they were only a capstone on a life of tragedy. Conversely, for Tiberius, the deaths were a golden opportunity. In fact, they were really, really convenient. One might even say too convenient. Just don't say it too loudly. For as long as anyone could remember, Octavian's wife Livia, 62 years old in 4 AD, had been pushing for Tiberius to be Octavian's designated heir. He'd appeared to start the race neck and neck with Marcellus, with both boys riding in Octavian's chariot during his Egyptian triumph, and both serving under the princeps in Iberia. But Marcellus's marriage to Julia in 25 BC had put him firmly in the lead, to Livia's intense displeasure. After Marcellus's sudden death two years later, rumors spread that Livia might have had a hand in things. Cassius Dio even drops a cryptic line about great numbers perishing in the ensuing controversy, implying that Octavian had squelched the rumors using the direct approach. Now, as the bodies of Gaius and Lucius were returned to Rome and placed beside their father in the Augustan mausoleum, the old rumors found new life. Well, it was certainly fortuitous that Tiberius had returned to Rome at such a critical time. And, in 4 AD, Octavian had little choice but to adopt Tiberius as his son and heir but not without making it clear to everyone that it was the last thing in the world he wanted to do, and not without hedging his bets. 
First, Octavian also adopted Agrippa and Julia's youngest son, the 16-year-old Agrippa Posthumus. And second, even though Tiberius already had his own son, 17-year-old Drusus, the princeps also forced him to adopt his nephew, the 19-year-old Germanicus. Octavian even had Tiberius designate Germanicus as his official heir. So, what's the story with Germanicus? Well, first off, his mother was Antonia Minor, the daughter of Octavia, making him much closer family-wise to Octavian. Second, by all accounts, Germanicus was shaping up to be an exceptional young man, just the kind of man the princeps could see one day succeeding him. Germanicus had also recently married Agrippina Major, the youngest daughter of Julia and Agrippa, further strengthening his Julian family ties. In contrast, Tiberius' son Drusus had no Julian ties, something Tiberius remedied in 4 AD by marrying him to Germanicus' sister, Livilla. Regardless, both Tiberius and Livia had gotten what they wanted. Tiberius was granted both tribunician authority and a share of Octavian's imperium, and this time he had no plans to surrender his power. In 6 AD, even as Juba was fighting the Gaetulians, Tiberius was dispatched to deal with a major revolt in Illyricum. Like the North African tribes, the Illyrians had legitimate grievances against Rome. High taxation, forced conscription, the destruction of their villages, and the selling of their people into slavery. The spark was a mutiny by the Decetiate, who defied Roman orders to fight in Germania. Their revolt was soon joined by half a dozen other tribes, until several hundred thousand warriors, led by a mixture of kings, generals, and chieftains, had come together in defiance of Rome. Even more alarming was the fact that Illyricum was right on the eastern border of Italy, making the rebellion a direct threat to the capital. Panic soon spread, and for the first time since the Battle of Cannae two centuries earlier, Roman ranks were augmented by purchasing and freeing thousands of slaves. Suetonius speaks of 15 legions and an equal number of auxiliaries, including some under King Roamatalces of neighboring Thrace, taking to the field to combat the Illyrians. The conflict would end up lasting years and be prosecuted to its bitter end by Tiberius, adopted son of Octavian and co-imperator of Rome. Meanwhile, Tiberius's former stomping grounds of Germania were put under control of the Roman governor Publius Quinctilius Varus. At 52 years old, Varus was both vastly experienced and supremely well-connected. His father and grandfather had both been Roman senators, and his second and third marriages were to members of Octavian's family. He'd served as consul alongside Tiberius in 13 BC, and even delivered the eulogy at Agrippa's funeral. Before coming to Germania, Varus had already served as governor of both Roman Africa and Syria, 
where he was generally known for his high taxes and harsh rule. In 9 AD, just as the Illyrian conflict was winding down, Varus set off to put down a revolt near the Rhine. He'd been tipped off by a trusted German prince named Arminius. The fact that Arminius's father-in-law, Segestes, warned Varus that Arminius was up to something fishy was totally ignored. Long story short, Varus marched his three legions, between twelve and 15,000 men, straight into a huge German trap. The swampy and heavily forested terrain nullified Roman military tactics, and after three days of heavy fighting, the slaughter was near total. Realizing that all was lost, Varus himself committed suicide. The Battle of the Teutoburg Forest would go down as one of the most important Roman defeats in history. While the lost eagle standards would eventually be recovered, the Roman will to conquer Germania never would. On hearing the news, the 72-year-old Octavian tore his clothes and refused to shave. For years afterwards, he'd occasionally exclaim, to no one in particular, Quintilius Varus, give me back my dragons. Sorry, I mean legions. Too much Game of Thrones. Anyway, this was the happy, fun atmosphere that Tiberius returned to in 9 AD, ready to celebrate his heroic victory over the Illyrians. So, triumph anyone? Well, the Senate thought he'd earned one, but Octavian overruled them, basically saying that his adopted son should content himself with being, well, his adopted son. Tiberius split the difference, postponing his triumph, but entering the city in a triumphal robe and crowned with a laurel, to take his seat on the tribunal next to Octavian. With consuls flanking either side, Tiberius was given a standing ovation by the Senate. For the moment, it was enough. After all, Octavian was getting old, and there was no sense in rushing things. Besides, during his absence, Tiberius had scored another major victory. His co-heir, Agrippa Posthumus, had been disowned by Octavian, and banished to a small island off the Tuscan coast. Now, Posthumus was no saint. He was apparently a pretty major jerk and kind of a thug. The historian with the kindest words for him, Tacitus, says that Though devoid of every good quality, he'd been involved in no scandal. But banishment for being a jerk was pretty unheard of, and one doesn't have to look too hard to see Livia's hand in this one. As a bonus, Posthumus's sister Julia had also been banished, to an island in the Adriatic. Much like her mother, the cause was a scandalous mix of adultery and treason. Her newborn child, the issue of one of her many affairs, was taken from her and left on a mountainside to die. Octavian was entering his final act, with his family thoroughly disgraced and his plans for succession dismantled one by one. He was still the most powerful man in the world, 
but he was already powerless to change what was to come. 